How you doing, gorgeous lady? Hello, lovely. I'm better now that I see your beautiful face. I mean, likewise, obviously. I'm excited that it's nice November and we might have some light trauma coming up. Yeah, I'll say light. Yeah, <laughs> sure. <laughs> All right, now I I'm mean, scared. It is still a paranormal true crime comedy podcast. That's true. It's very true. How has your week been since I last saw your gorgeous face? It's been great. I mentioned it last episode, but I got to go to Kesha this and? weekend. She's amazing. It was really, really great. Love it. She puts on a hell of a show. I wore six-inch heels because oh, I'm tired. <laughs> I'm tired of staring at the back of everyone's head when I'm in GA. Understood. So I actually had a decent view for once. I could see the stage. I let someone in front of me because they were so much shorter than me, which has never happened before in my life. <laughs> it felt great. I'm not going to lie. Were they like platform at least? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Oh, no. I'm not not rocking six-inch stilettos. I'm not coordinated enough for that. Okay. Yeah. I mean, who is? Fuck. No. I was lucky enough not to bust my ass in the platforms. <laughs> so... I was very careful walking down all the stairs. I was like, this is how I die. And then it's going to be really embarrassing when they have to say that to everyone. It's like, <laughs> well, she was wearing very, <laughs> very ill-advised heels and just toppled to her death. Like, that tracks for me. I don't agree. I think that's fucking brilliant. That wouldn't have occurred to me, obviously, because I'm a monster. And uh, I never have a problem seeing anything. No, you're... It meets the ground, like, seeing <laughs> below. Then I'm like, you know, the proof no. doesn't go that far. You're gloriously tall. I love it. I loved, I feel like I am was probably about your height in the heels, and it was it felt great. I'm not going to lie. It was a big, <laughs> uh, big ego boost. It went to my head a little bit. I was like, oh, yeah, don't fuck I with mean, me. Like, <laughs> how the other half lives. Uh, considering everyone in my group, the shortest person with their shoes was probably six feet tall. It also helped then because then no one had to, like, bend down two feet to talk to me so sure how was your week lady it was good i saw a broadway show of course you did of course You're so cultured and classy i love it <laughs> Shut up. Uh, it's a show i've been wanting to see for quite a while and then it was like the last like two weeks that it was open i was like ah fuck i have to watch this and i got to see it with katie who you met when we saw garbage yes. together yes Yes. Hey, Katie. Hey, girl. How you doing? She's wonderful. She's wonderful. Such a great person to go to a show with. Yes. Yes. She's amazing in every possible way. So we went to go see The Shark is Broken, which is... Is this about Jaws? It is. It's about the making <laughs> of that. Robert Shaw's son wrote it and plays Robert Shaw. And it's really fucked up, like how much he looks like him, you know, like yeah, relative and all that. I thought it was great. There's a really... If you like that movie, Chow Could You Not, there's a really great two and a half hour documentary about it, about the making of it, that it, it goes so beyond just the shark not working and just all of the things that weren't going well, which were a plenty. Yes. And apparently Richard Dreyfus released a statement that he was upset about his uh, portrayal in it. <laughs> you mean the accurate things we read? <laughs> yeah and I was presented like, in the documentary yeah I was like him being like pissed and like at an 11 that like everything was taking forever and like the fucking shark was broken again I'm like that's me like all of the time like film and tv is very difficult for me to do because I'm very much 
someone who like runs on adrenaline and it's like I'm very much a marathoner like go 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 but like the constant start and stop and waiting eight hours it's like for me that's very difficult it takes you out of it yeah and there are people like there's ways to like get built for it and I, I haven't reached that yet but it's very exhausting to wait around for hours on end to like work for like 20 minutes yeah so I don't you know Katie was like, Richard Dreyfus was born being a fucking asshole and being upset about everything. <laughs> and I'm like, that's accurate, which is unfortunate because Richard Dreyfus is one of my birthday twins. Oh, no. But he's like not a good one. But I thought it was great. I really liked it. I thought there were great performances. I really enjoyed it. I don't know what the documentary is called, but but if you look up like Jaws documentary, it's like two and a half hours long. And they have survivors of the Indianapolis interviewed in it. Oh, shit. Because since that was a secret mission, like, no one knew about it. So imagine, like, going to see, like, a fucking movie with your family. And then all of a sudden there's this monologue about, like, the most traumatizing, like, four days of your life. Holy fuck. Yeah. That documentary is great. But it was a thing, like, because Robert Shaw was notoriously wasted throughout all of it. Yeah. And they didn't include this in it, which made me a little because they talk about it in the documentary that when he did the famous monologue, he was just so wrecked and it was such a shit show that it was so bad that he was aware of it. Yes. And he went to Steven Spielberg the next day being like, hey, um, I'm really sorry. Could we do that again? <laughs> I'm so sorry. And then like nailed it in one take. But so so that specific thing of like him eating crow about it doesn't happen in the show. But they do show them, like, trying to film it and him just being a shit show and being wasted and not knowing his lines. And, like, with everything, it was like, are we not going to get the fucking monologue? Because that's kind of, like, the whole yeah, the whole gig. And, like, spoil- like that's how they end the show. Okay. Him doing the five-page monologue, which is just <sighs> so good. It was great. I always love being fortunate enough to be able to see theater in the limited time that I have, especially. So I was very happy I got to see it. And then see it with uh, Katie, because there's also not a ton of people who are like, yeah, let's watch a play about a movie, about the making of a movie. Really? I was like, that's that's how you would sell me on it. I'd be like, yeah, let's fucking go. <laughs> Any other show, I'd be like, mm, I don't know how I feel about that. Especially Jaws, like, I'm in. I mean, I haven't steered you wrong with any shows that I have recommended to you. You never do. Yeah. That sounds amazing. I have been on a what went wrong podcast kick and they mm. also do mm. an episode on jaws i need to get because i've been wanting to get into another podcast with all of my free time i know right <laughs> <laughs> i've been just i would like put it on the background while i did other things because i was like or like in the car driving to work and things like that because i was just like well see that's why i love a podcast yeah because then i can do something else while getting information about another thing yeah i'm, I'm adding that to the list I feel like you would really enjoy it. I, I would learned love that. some very interesting things about some movies recently that I had no fucking idea. I'm still dying and in shock. I love all that. I love that. Yes. I love like behind the scenes shit. I love like insider intel shit of like, well, you know, when this was happening, you know, I love all of that shit. I watch every behind the scenes and especially like with HBO, their new thing is like, we're going to do a behind the scenes feature and then we're going to have a fucking companion podcast. I'm like, give me all of it. I want to consume <laughs> all of it. I want every fact you can give me about this fucking thing. Yes. 
no detail is too much. Like I want to no. know. And then, and then I'll go on like IMDb and be like, did you know, bitch, I want to know fucking everything. Tell me fucking everything. No, I love it. I love it. I'm not obsessive at all. No, of course not. In the best way. I love it. You know. I'll give you one little teaser. So first of all, backtrack. Not this past episode, but the episode before is Galaxy Quest, which is wonderful. (gasps) They do the Princess Bride before that. Mm. Amazing. So I listened yesterday to the one on the Popeye movie, which do you remember this? Fuck yeah, Robin Williams' first uh, cinematic feature. Yes. With Shelley Duvall as olive oil. Absolutely, I saw that shit. Yes. So fun fact that I learned from that movie is they were shooting on Malta. They built the entire town. And apparently everyone was like out to fucking party because it was released in like 1980. So they literally shipped mannequins full of cocaine from the States so that they could basically like keep everyone on set and behind the scenes high on cocaine the entire time and they were just like yeah we need these dummies for the movie for prop work and they were just filling them with cocaine and like they made it through customs like no issues wild the Popeye My movie it's fucking for kids like what is on the floor I could not get over it I could not get over it I'm never gonna get over it so yeah, it's deeply fascinating. They do a bunch of really amazing classic movies. So check it out. What Went Wrong podcast. Absolutely. That sounds amazing. And just added that to my uh, unsolicited dinner facts. <laughs> oh, I told everyone. <laughs> I love that. Everyone at work was like, what is wrong with you? And I was like, did you know? <laughs> Amy, that's why we became like, friends. I know. My God. I know. On that note. Do you have a spooky, creepy, not quite traumatizing paranormal story for me this week? I got you. I do. Yes. Here, Okay, here's the thing. Is this traumatizing? No. Upwards inflection question mark. <laughs> oh, Is no. this my worst nightmare? Yes. Oh, it's in the woods. <laughs> because I took took a cue. Took, what, what is the fucking expression that I'm blanking on? I don't know. Took a, I took a page? I don't know. Sure. Let's say that. Whatever. I took a page from the Amy Traden Book of Life. Yes. And I started watching These Woods Are Haunted. Yes. What did you think, first and foremost? Is that bad, right? No, I really enjoy it. I dig it. I really dig it. Because it's like exactly the same as celebrity ghost stories, but in the woods. Yes. And not yeah. celebrities, obviously. But that's the exact, right. it's the exact <laughs> yes, format. Exactly. Yes. Oh, my God. I'm so excited. And because you've, like, binged all of it, or, like, a good portion of it, you will definitely know the story. But everything that happens in the story is my worst nightmare. Like, top to bottom. Every single fucking thing. I'm so excited. Also, you were severely overestimating my short-term memory. So I appreciate that. <laughs> but I assure you, I'm, I don't think I'm going to remember anything if I've seen this one. Oh, girl. It's just traumatizing to me. It's, like, fucked up and it's a crazy story. But, uh, like, I, everyone's going to be okay. It's, you know, it's nicer November. So, James and Westy were friends. Their good friend Rob was shipping out to Afghanistan soon, but before he did, he was getting married. Rob was going to marry a woman named Lacey, who was from Forks, Washington, and the wedding was going to take place there. Yeah. Twilight, you guys. Sorry. I know. (laughs) Is that the only reason I knew Forks? Yes. Yeah. It's the only reason any of us know Forks. (laughs) I've been there. It's remote. 
Do people sparkle there? <laughs> no, but there is a lot of uh, werewolf propaganda. I don't know. Signage. They're, they've embraced oh. it. Yeah. Hmm. They lean in hard. I like that. They did. Forks was a 50-mile drive from where James and Westy were coming from. It's a long and winding drive on a two-lane highway. The plan was to drive Rob, the groom-to-be, to Forks to go to the wedding, then drive back the same night. But as they were on their way to Forks, James's left tire blew out. This part of the country is kind of in the middle of nowhere, so there were no nearby gas stations or anyone who could help. So James had to change the tire himself on the road. But since they were now driving with the spare on, they could only drive about 20 miles an hour. Not only that, they figured that it would be too dangerous to drive back after the wedding at night with a spare on. So James and Westy decided that the best thing to do would be to spend the night in Forks and wait till morning to get a replacement tire for the car. Despite their mishap, the three men made it to the wedding on time. And James said that it was a nice ceremony and reception. At the end of the night, James shared his and Westy's predicament with the bride's family and asked if they could stay the night in their house. And the bride's family said that they couldn't. What? Girl. Rude. Need I remind you, these two men literally drove the groom to the wedding. But I guess fuck them? Yeah. Girl. And James and Westy didn't have enough money to rent a hotel room for the night. And it seems like, the context clues I got, it seems like they're in college. Okay. Because the guy, Rob, like the actor playing him is like real young. Like he definitely looks like teens, early 20s. And later on they mentioned that James is in school and Westy's out of state. So it seems like these are just a bunch of college kids. So they don't really have like cash on them. And I gave it a quick goog and most hotels in the area average at about 100 bucks a night. So again, no one at this fucking wedding would spot them a Benjo. Like, what the fuck? That's ridiculous. Like, the least you could do is put me up for the night. Like, come on. And it's a thing in the reenactment. Like, he comes out, it's like, no, there's no extra beds. It's like, they don't, they won't even let us stay on a couch. It's like, no. And like, guys, come on. What the fuck? You guys can't even pull like a hundred bucks, like among all of you, if you're not going to fucking let them stay. After they drove to the middle fucking nowhere forks. Yeah. What the fuck? So... James and Westy are shit out of luck with nowhere to stay. It was cold out, and they had no change of clothes or sleeping bags because, again, they didn't fucking expect to spend the night there. Then the bride offered to let the men stay at her grandmother's cabin in La Push. La Push is a little over 20 minutes away from Forks. Their grandmother had lived in the cabin her whole life, but had passed away six months earlier, so the cabin was just sitting there empty. Rob's wife, Lacey, mentioned that her uncle had been using the cabin as a hunting lodge, but that it had otherwise been unoccupied. So James and Westy got into a car with Rob and Lacey, leaving behind their own car, and drove to the cabin in La Push. The house was in the middle of nowhere. It's several miles from town, and it was already dark out by the time that they arrived. Not only that, the cabin was completely surrounded by forest, which was also pitch black. Again, worst fucking nightmare it's your worst nightmare and the fucking trees are massive out there they're huge douglas firs like a bunch of them are washed up on la push beach and standing next to them they were easily like twice johnny's height they're massive that's I mean that's fucking nuts <laughs> beautiful for the record yes yeah, sh- i you know i love it god's majesty but i <laughs> i don't want to be in a cabin in the woods at night without a way to leave 
No. Like, uh, no. No, thank you. James said, quote, I was relieved that we had a place to stay that night. But being out in the middle of the woods in a cabin that somebody had died in just a few months before was a little weird. End quote. Westy said, quote, Things don't feel right. There's something wrong. End quote. After the four arrived at the cabin, in a sus-as-fuck move, Lacey tells James and Westy that her uncle who uses the cabin as a hunting lodge is estranged from the family. Not only was he not invited to Rob and Lacey's wedding, he didn't even know it was happening, and he also doesn't know that James and Westy are going to be staying at the cabin, and for extra funsies, he didn't take his mother's death very well, so Lacey tells James and Westy that if he shows up and finds them there, it might be really bad. What? I'd be like, you could actually just drive me back to my car now, thanks. Right, and it's basically like, good night, don't let the bed bugs bite, bye, <laughs> see you in the morning. Like, what the fuck? So... No, you couldn't have given us any of this information before we got in the car to go here? Like, No, girl, it fucking gets, like, way worse. It gets so much worse. Oh, God. So Lacey and Rob haven't left yet. They're just there to, like, or Lacey anyway, is there to, like, give more, like, very alarming information. So (laughs) (laughs) they go into the house and immediately come across the kitchen. There was a card table with some metal chairs, a refrigerator, and an old phone on the counter. Lacey showed them the fridge and said they could help themselves to whatever they wanted. But when she opened it up, it was just full of, like, game meat that had just been, like, hunted and stripped and, like, you know, just, like, chunks of meat. Which, incidentally, I have an uncle like this. He is a hunter, and he it's his job to, like, take people out hunting and shit. And he, not dissimilarly to this story, lived with my grandmother. And she kind of learned that she couldn't eat anything that he gave her because she would he would just give her, like, weird shit and tell her it was something else. Oh, no, no, no. Yeah, and he had, like, this huge, those, like, trunk freezers that it yeah. was all, like, deer meat and, like, alligator meat and weird shit. So I was like, I kind of know this person a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> then they explored the rest of the house, and Lacey took James and Westy into the bedroom. And when they got there... They saw a nest that had been made in the middle of the floor out of old women's clothing. Oh, what? Girl. Oh, no. No, no, no. Wait. And the nest had a man-sized hole in it. And James and Westy are understandably like, I'm sorry, what in the ever-living fuck is this? But apparently because they're polite, they don't actually say anything. But the new bride clearly clocks this, and she's like, Oh, you know, my uncle hasn't gotten over my grandmother's death and as a result has been sleeping in a pile of his dead mother's clothes whenever he's up here. Uh, It might as well be a pile of red flags at this point because, like, get the fuck out. This is how you get murdered in a cabin in the woods. This is literally a horror movie. Like, literally. (sighs) I don't like any of this. No. It's literally a fucking horror movie. I don't know how this hasn't been turned into a horror movie. Westy chimes into the camera saying, quote, which isn't normal. People don't normally do that. I look at the nest, and even though I feel sympathy for someone who is disturbed, he's really disturbed. It just fills me with dread. And even though I joke with James about, reet, reet, Norman Bates, you know, <laughs> which facts, it doesn't go away. There's just this nagging dread in the back of my head, end quote. But they know they don't have another option. 
It's the middle of the night. They're now in the middle of the fucking woods. They don't have a car because, remember, they left it back at the bride's house. And they don't have anywhere else to stay. And it's below freezing outside. James said, quote, we didn't have any choice but to stay, end quote. When Rob and his new bride left, James and Westy understandably felt pretty nervous and freaked out. They had just found out about her uncle and were unaware that this was going to be a potential problem that night. The two decided to keep all the lights off in the house so as not to attract any attention. And just in case the uncle were to show up, they don't want him to suspect that there was anybody in the house. So they talked about where to sleep and decided that they should find somewhere that was hidden. Again, in case the fucking deranged uncle shows up. This is insane. This is insane. It's literally insane. Also... I just need to reiterate this. Lacey and your family's the fucking worst. Just by the way. Right? Like the fucking worst. So they're freaked the fuck out, understandably, because one, how could you put anyone in this position? Two, let alone guests at your wedding. Three, let alone the people who drove your fucking husband to his own fucking wedding so that he could fucking marry you. Yeah. You're just trash, top to bottom. So as they walked around... James and Westy found a retractable stairway into the ceiling of the living room that led to the attic. Before they went upstairs, they decided that they needed a weapon to defend themselves with. And since the uncle uses the cabin as a hunting lodge, it's reasonable to assume that he's armed and likely dangerous given his apparent break from reality. James had seen an axe outside when they first got to the cabin, so he went out, grabbed the axe, and brought it up the stairs. Up the stairs was an unfinished attic. It was old and dusty with exposed wood everywhere. Once in the attic, James and Westy retracted the stairway. So again, if the deranged uncle were to show up, he wouldn't know that they were there. There they found some dirty mattresses and a couple of dusty quilts. No. Girl. No. The dirty mattresses thing really, really got me. Like, I'd rather sleep in the car, honestly, at this point. I'm not about this. There's no fucking car. Oh. I would have been like, Lacey, bring me back to my car. I'm sleeping in the fucking car. I mean, yeah. Doing this. I went on Reddit and a bunch of people said that. They're like, I would have slept in the fucking car. But like, yes. here's the thing. They probably aren't spending the night at her parents' place. She's already the fucking worst. So I doubt she's going to be like, yeah, I'm totally cool to drive you back the 20 minutes. Even though I just drove you all the way out here when I'm trying to be fucking nice to you so that you can like stay in my grandma's like psychotic fucking cabin. <laughs> uh, okay. This is fair. This is, yeah. this is fair. So they get themselves settled and position themselves near the window that faced out over the driveway so they would be able to see if anyone was coming. Westy and James sat on the mattresses, opened up a bottle of booze they had brought with them, and started drinking and catching up. At the time, James was in college and Westy was living out of state. So the two were joking and just trying to take their minds off the fact that they're stuck in this dead woman's cabin in the middle of fucking nowhere without a car where this man has been sleeping in a nest made out of his dead mother's clothes. Again, this is a fucking horror movie. This is insane. But despite the jovial nature of their conversation, James said that the two never forgot that the psycho uncle could show up at any minute. James and Westy had been chatting for a long time when they suddenly heard the doorknob on the front door being violently shaken, like someone was trying to get in. They froze. Someone was there, and they were fucking terrified. Westy said, quote, It sounded like whoever was trying to get in was upset. 
They were angry. End quote. Then they heard the door open. James said, quote, And when I looked at Westy, I saw that he was as scared as I was. We were sitting there in the dark, staring at each other, holding our breath. End quote. They were certain the psycho uncle was there. They sat as quietly as they could. Then, a few minutes later, they heard the sound of the card table and metal folding chairs being dragged across the floor downstairs. And James and Westy are freaking the fuck out. But they're sitting as quietly as they can in the hopes that they won't be found out by the deranged uncle and that he or whoever else is downstairs will just go away. In that moment, James decides to reassess his options for lodgings that night. So he tried using his cell phone, but there was no reception. Because again, they're in the middle of the fucking woods. So the two men had no choice but to stay the night at the cabin. After a half an hour went by and the two hadn't heard anything downstairs, they resumed talking to one another in hushed tones. Then they heard the phone downstairs in the kitchen ringing. And they waited for a while to see if anyone was going to answer it. It rang about 30 times when James and Westy decided that if the uncle were downstairs, he would have picked up the phone already. So James decided to go downstairs and answer the phone because he rationalized that people didn't let the phone ring that long unless it was really important. James picked up the axe, climbed downstairs, and went to answer the phone. The living room was completely dark, but he could see the kitchen where the phone was. James was afraid the uncle was still in the cabin, lurking in the shadows as he had the distinct feeling that someone was watching him. <laughs> oh, no. Girl. No. It's a fucking horror movie, I'm telling you. <sighs> it really is. He said, quote, all of the hair on my body stood on end, end quote. James goes to the phone that is sitting on the counter, ringing. He picks it up, and the phone is dead. There's no dial tone. There's no one on the other line. Nothing. The wave of chills. Absolutely not. Girl. James checks the phone cord and sees that the phone isn't even plugged into the wall. No, no. Girl. No. This is like every horror movie. Yes. You're right. It's really, this is insane. This is insane. Yes. It had been ringing by itself. Upon this realization, the phone began to ring again. Where are the matches? Burn it down. <laughs> Absolutely. down. It might be freezing outside, but you know what? The warmth of the cabin will, you'll be great. You'll be fine. Yeah. James bolted the fuck out of the kitchen and climbed back up the attic and pulled the stairs up as fast as he could behind him. And Westy was like, who was on the phone? And James tells him there was nobody on the line, that the line wasn't even plugged in. And if Westy didn't believe him, he was more than welcome to check it out for himself. Okay, To I which love that. Westy took a hard pass <laughs> on that suggestion. He's like, I believe you, dude. Don't worry. Yep. Westy said, quote, oh, I'm still freaked out. I'm not going to volunteer to go down there at all, end quote. And it was at this point that the two men realized the cabin they were staying in was actually haunted. After the phone incident, James said he didn't really feel like talking. The two settled in and tried to sleep in what they had now figured out was a haunted house. And then the phone started ringing again, and it didn't stop ringing. James started counting the rings and counted till well over 100 rings before he decided that there was no point in counting anymore. Westy said, quote, The last thing I remember before I fell asleep was just thinking, what am I doing here? End quote. 
when James woke up the following morning, he woke up with that same feeling of dread that he had had the previous night when answering the phone. James fancies himself a rational, sensible person, and he was determined to find a rational explanation to help him deal with his fear of everything that went down the night before. So he went downstairs to investigate. He had been hoping to find evidence that the uncle had been there and had left, and that the whole terrifying evening had been just a dream, that the phone had been plugged into the wall the entire time, and that he had just psyched himself out and had imagined it all. So Westy and James dropped the stairs and went into the living room, and they found it exactly as they had left it the night before, meaning that the uncle hadn't been in the house. Honestly, thank God. I would much rather deal with a ghost situation than an I actual mean, yeah. physical person who might murder me. Yeah. I don't want to deal with either, but like, I mean, yes, it's the lesser facts. of two evils in this scenario, in, in my opinion. Yeah, I don't disagree with that. James didn't want to go near the phone, so he left Westy to examine it. Westy picked it up. No dial tone. He looked at the phone cord, and the phone was not plugged into the wall. They looked all over the cabin for another phone because maybe it was another phone that had been ringing. That's cute. You guys are cute. You know, girl. (laughs) I get it. I get it. I would too. Denial's a hell of a drug. But that was the only phone in the house. James said, quote, Part of me felt vindicated that I hadn't made it up, that what I had experienced was real. The other part of me was pretty creeped out. End quote. Rob and his new bride arrived to pick the two up the next morning, and James said that they chewed them out for leaving them overnight and told them what happened. They asked Rob and Lacey if they had tried to call them in the middle of the night, and Lacey said that they hadn't. At the end of the day, the only rational explanation that James could come up with as to what he and Westy experienced that night was that the cabin was haunted by Lacey's grandmother. It made sense after all. She had lived there her whole life. She had died in that house. So it made sense that she didn't want strangers staying there. The experience also left a lasting impact on Westy, who said, quote, I don't stay in old cabins anymore, end quote. And that is the wildly terrifying story of that time James and Westy were made to stay in a fucking haunted cabin in the fucking woods that was amazing and horrifying and i'm really happy they didn't get murdered by the possibly deranged uncle literally same (sighs) it sucks that that you have to like deal with a haunted cabin and you're also terrified the whole time that the uncle's gonna show up and actually murder you like ugh. it's literally a horror movie right i'm actually surprised you're right somebody hasn't done this before being like, oh, I think I'm, I'm going to be murdered by this, like, super deranged guy who has a break from reality because his mother fucking died. And it's like, JK, it's actually just fucking haunted. And you're like, what <laughs> the fuck? <laughs> oh, that was so good. I'm so glad you watched These Woods Are Haunted and enjoyed it. Thank you. I believe that's episode two, season one, episode two. Oh, nice. Uh, I did not remember that. But I feel like when I started watching it, I just played it fast and loose and I just like picked an episode. Picked around. Yeah. It's great. Especially if you like celebrity ghost stories, it's like the exact same thing, but they're not celebrities. Yes. And it's in the woods. And the reenactments are not that. As horrendous? Yeah. They're not that terrible, actually. They're no, like, they're not bad. I'm not going to be like, they're amazing, but they're, you know, I 
didn't burst out laughing at every turn because of how ridiculous everything was. I've not encountered a wig situation yet that I'm aware of. No. Like a party city wig budget. <laughs> you always clock those party city They're wigs. They're so bad, though. They're really bad. <laughs> I love that so much. I'm not super afraid of the woods, but I, I'm going to take a hard pass on this. I would be terrified in this situation, too. Yes. The, yeah. Yes. This would be my nightmare. So thank you for introducing me to These Woods Are Haunted. You're so welcome. It's about time I pulled my weight. You introduced me to so many amazing, <laughs> Shut the fuck amazing up. things. <laughs> I introduced you to the show that is your actual nightmare. You're welcome. I, I mean, yes. You're actually. welcome. <laughs> thank you again for that story. I loved it. Absolutely. Again, thank you for introducing me. All right, so it's the first true crime of nicer November. Nicer November. <laughs> I like that it went from nice November to nicer November because we were like, well, I mean, we still, you know, yeah, it's still crime. It's still crime. And as I've realized, there's a lot of murder in the crime world. It's a lot yeah. of murdering and uh, assault generally. Yeah. But that being said, no trigger warnings for this story. Oh shit. Yay. Is this your first story without a trigger <laughs> In a while. In a hot minute. Yeah. In a hot minute. Oh, man. I love it. Can't wait. Good. I think you'll enjoy this one. Sources. The Criminal Podcast, Episode 122, New York Times, The Harvard Crimson, Daily Hampshire Gazette, Casetext.com, Good Old Wikipedia, and excerpts from the book, The Strange Case of the Mad Professor by Peter Koble. Oh. I did not read this full book. That's why I said excerpts. But I That's fine. read some of it. It seems very interesting, and I definitely would recommend it. But I just did not have the time this week <laughs> <laughs> to read a full book. How dare you, Amy? I know. I read pieces How of a book. How fucking dare you? <laughs> I feel like I'm in school again, and this is when I'm like, oh, fuck, I got to read the cliff notes real quick because we have a paper due, and I, <laughs> I'm way behind. That was me all of the time. Yes. Yes, this is my whole college experience. It's like, fuck. This is due tomorrow? God damn it. All right. <laughs> Adderall, Red Bull, let's do this. Boom. A quick note, there is a biologist involved in the story named Peter Klopfer. The author of the book is Peter Koble. In an attempt to avoid confusion, I mainly refer to this biologist as Peter and the author of the book by his last name, Koble, instead. Cool. Mainly for my own confusion, because did I mix them up? constantly while I was reading this and listening to the podcast. Yeah, of course I fucking did. And then I had to like set everyone straight, i.e. myself. How dare they both have such similar names? <sighs> Seriously, sometimes I will tap out of a book just because of that because I'm like, I can't keep everyone straight. God damn it. That's why I could never do like the Tolkien universe. Oh, yes. So my mother told me that when like if I tell her about someone, she like forms a picture in her head and I don't do that at all. The closest thing that I'll do, like I told you, is that if I know someone else who has your name, like they'll be like the fill-in. Yes, their yes. Thing, which was very funny because the only other Amy I knew was an Asian woman before when Johnny was I'll talking take it. to me about Amy. About I knew you weren't Asian, but it was just like, that's like the stand-in. <laughs> okay. Yes. So when I read these books, I don't get an image of what this person looks like. That's why I prefer watching, like if a thing gets made, they'll be like, okay, that's the face for these people. And then I can substitute that for when I read the book. That's relatable to me. 
I understand that. Mm-hmm. All right. Jumping right in. John Butner Janish was born in Chicago on December 7th, 1924, to Frederick Janish and Gertrude Butner. His father was a successful architect who was originally born in Vienna, and his mother was born in Chicago, but was of German descent. Two years later, the couple had a daughter together who they named Theodora, which is such a like old world name. That was my grandmother's name. Everyone called her Teddy, and I feel like you don't hear that anymore at all. I love that. I kind of love it, too. Yeah. I love that. Or like Theo. Like call yeah. Theo. I love that That's so much. Cute. That's mm. really cute. John's early childhood growing up in Chicago had an enormous impact on the curious, precocious boy, inspiring a lifelong passion for urban life, its culture, architecture, and politics. His parents were well-off and cultured. His father loved classical music, especially opera, and imparted a lifelong love of it to John. However, the stock market crash of 1929 devastated his family's finances, and in 1931, they moved to Eagle River, Wisconsin, a small resort town that was popular with vacationers from Chicago and Milwaukee. The stock market crash is on my birthday, BT-dubs. <laughs> You've told me this before, and I will never yes. forget it. I love that that's like a... I don't want to say you're bragging about like it, but I love that that's like, Yeah, I love that that's what you think of, and you're like... <laughs> I dated a guy for a bit who like was like an economist or some shit. And, you know, I told him my birthday. He's like, do you know what? And it was funny because it was like a couple years after Hurricane Sandy, which was also my birthday. And like that, he was like, do you know what else is on your birthday? I was like, the stock market crash. He's like, yes. And he was immediately rock hard, I'm sure. I don't know about that, but very impressed. <laughs> I mean, I would be impressed too. Be like, remember like when this thing that like eviscerated the country? My birthday. <laughs> You're like, hi, hello. Hi. <laughs> uh, I was like, I hope I'm on a game show one day, and that's one of my questions, and I'm going to be like. It's the million-dollar question. Yeah. Monique's birthday. I got you. Boom. They're going to be like, I'm sorry, Monique's birthday is not one of the answers? Do you have the date, ma'am? <laughs> I'm like, oh, fuck, yeah, right, yeah, of course. I love you. <laughs> I love you. All right. So John's grandparents were living there at the time and gave the family 100 feet of waterfront property on Cranberry Lake, where his father designed and built a beautiful two-story home for the family. But life in Eagle River was very different than it had been in Chicago for John, and he never quite fit in. He loved classical music, theater, and the arts, and in a small town where there were very few adults who shared his passions, there were even fewer kids his own age who did. He was a voracious reader and highly intelligent, but didn't make many friends because he considered everyone there beneath him in intelligence and social standing. Not a cute look, for the record. I know. And as a result, he began to annoy or alienate many of the townspeople. He was a brilliant student, however, with one of his teachers describing him as, quote, having the mental capabilities of a college sophomore while still a junior in high school, end quote. But it was more than just his sense of superiority that alienated his fellow residents in Eagle River. After World War II broke out, 16-year-old John became very outspoken about his opposition of the war. And to many, it seemed like more than just a belief in pacifism and anti-militarism. They insisted that John was actually sympathetic to and even enamored with the Nazis. Yikes. Uh, yes. Not a cute look, bro. Not a cute look. And apparently their concerns were more than just wartime paranoia and the fact that John was of German-Austrian descent. Several people went on record about his pro-German convictions. 
the editor of the local paper, Joyce Larkin, said that John told her, quote, the Germans are the super race. Yikes! Uh... The Germans will rule the world. No matter where you are, if you're a German, you belong to Germany, end quote. The postmaster, Edna Bonn, said, quote, everyone knew that he admired Hitler. <sighs> However, Larkin also admitted that she received a letter from John asserting that the American government was prejudiced against Jews, Blacks, and the Japanese, which, to be fair, doesn't exactly sound like the sentiments of a Nazi sympathizer. Sure. He was also outspoken about his support of the civil rights movement and labor causes and later opposed the Vietnam War, which contradicts his early apparent pro-Nazi sentiments. Koble said John's desire for attention was enormous and that he didn't seem to care whether it came in the form of admiration, disdain, or loathing. So it's likely his quote-unquote regard for Hitler may have been nothing more than youthful ignorance and a cry for attention. Yeah, just being contrarian. Yeah. Us. Oh, God, I hate those people. They're so annoying. After graduating high school, John was accepted to the University of Chicago in 1942, enrolling in their early admission Bachelor of Philosophy program. And for John, acceptance of the University of Chicago, with its reputation for academic excellence, further validated his belief in his intellectual superiority. He began hyphenating his last name at that time, because it seemed more dignified, and began using the nickname BJ. Which, Giannis is with a J, so that's his last name hyphenated. Yeah. However, the university's program was rigorous, and despite his previous academic excellence, BJ was unprepared for the demands of an upper-tier university, and his performance during his freshman year at Chicago was mediocre at best. That's how that goes, because when you're smart and you're not used to working... Yep. A year later, he failed to show up for his required military service and was arrested in December of 1943 as a conscientious objector of World War II. He told a prison official that he believed, quote, war was illogical, unethical, completely political, and irrational, end quote. Although he was sentenced to three years in prison, he was eventually released on parole after six months. After this brief stint in prison, BJ worked several low-level jobs, usually as an orderly or clerk at various hospitals and took a few college courses part-time. However, he seemed to lack commitment to either and frequently received poor evaluations from his superiors at work. One note in his employment files said, quote, Mr. Janish is undoubtedly a very sick boy and one who should never have been employed in the Neuropsychiatric Institute. Damn! I know, I know. Fuck. We've advised this boy to seek psychiatric advice and believe that he has some intentions of following advice, end quote. So, red flag from the start a little bit. Yep. When his probation finally ended in March of 1947, BJ returned to the University of Chicago to continue his degree. But once again, his grades were lackluster. Despite this, BJ eventually earned his bachelor's degree in the biological sciences in September of 1949. When he entered grad school, still at the University of Chicago, he turned his education and life around completely. He became passionate about the field of anthropology, his grades improved dramatically, and he was mentored by Sherwood Washburn, who was widely regarded as one of the foremost physical anthropologists of the century. However, they eventually had a bit of a falling out, but it's unclear exactly what happened. One story said that BJ was caught siphoning cash from a graduate student fund, which he used to throw lavish parties. Oh, shit. 
but nothing was ever confirmed. While pursuing his graduate studies, he met a fellow student named Vina Malowitz. She was the daughter of a prominent New Orleans physician and a brilliant student who started university just a few weeks before her 16th birthday, which, damn, girl, girl, good for work. you. The two began dating soon after they met and eventually married on September 22, 1950. Vina became a talented biochemist and was BJ's closest collaborator over the course of their 27-year marriage. BJ earned his master's degree in 1953 before pursuing doctoral work at the University of Michigan. He completed his PhD in 1957 and the following year joined the anthropology department at Yale University from 1958 to 1965 as an assistant and later as an associate professor. While he was there, he gained a reputation as a talented but abrasive educator and was reportedly disliked by many of his colleagues because he was quote-unquote boastful. In 1959, BJ and Vina started traveling to Madagascar to study and collect lemurs for their work at Yale. BJ was one of the first Americans to study lemurs, and his work has since inspired generations of lemur researchers. Lemurs are primates that are only found in Madagascar and can be as small as one ounce or as big as 20 pounds. Many lemur species have become extinct over the years, and in 2012, they were declared the most endangered mammals in the world. There are currently around 100 species of lemurs still remaining. Fun fact, the name lemur is derived from the Latin lemures, which refers to specters or ghosts that were exercised during the Lemura Festival of ancient Rome. I love that. I knew you would. As soon as I read that, I was like, sold. Thank you. That's going in, obviously. <laughs> I love that. You know me so well. <laughs> of course. Paranormal tie-in to the true crime story? Yes, please. Obsessed. BJ eventually brought back about 90 lemurs from Madagascar, which they housed in their lab on campus. However, the facilities were not adequate to house these wild animals, and there were many local stories about lemurs getting out of their cages, escaping the lab, and climbing up some of the buildings. <laughs> Girl, Obsessed. yeah. Can you imagine? You're just like walking no. around campus and you're like, is that a fucking lemur on the roof? <laughs> we should call somebody about this. That's hilarious. Then in 1964, BJ visited Duke University in Durham, North Carolina, to deliver an academic talk about his work with lemurs, which is where he met Peter Kopfler, a newly tenured Duke professor and biologist who was studying mother-infant bonding, but mostly in goats and deer. Peter admitted he didn't even know what a lemur was at that time, but enjoyed BJ's talk so much that he introduced himself after, and the two immediately hit it off. They discussed their respective research, and Peter invited him to the land where he housed his goats for his studies. BJ was amazed that Duke had given Peter so much space to keep his animals, since all he had for his lemurs at Yale were cages in his lab. And because he had observed their behavior in the wild, BJ knew they weren't behaving normally in the cages. Seeing an opportunity, he offered Peter a deal. If he would let him keep his lemurs there, Peter could use them in his studies as well. So they came up with a plan to work together, and it took about a year to put it in motion. BJ got a job at Duke and brought his 90 lemurs to Durham, housing them in a goat barn on Peter's. Can you imagine getting 90 no. lemurs? No, not for a single second. Like, we'll, just, no. like, we'll pack them in the car. Like, we're going on a little road trip. I have no idea what the logistics were for shipping those lemurs. I <laughs> hope it was done humanely. Yes. But yeah, wild. So he brought his 90 lemurs to Durham, housing them in a goat barn on Peter's research land while they worked on making the land safe and workable for 90 active primates. 
It took almost a year, but they finally got the facility up and running with sizable runs, both indoors and outdoors, with fencing that allowed them to keep the larger lemurs loose together outdoors in the woods. This was the beginning of what would eventually become known as the Duke Lemur Center, a sanctuary dedicated to the preservation and research of lemurs that included a breeding program. Although he knew they were building something extraordinary, Peter said that BJ was not easy to get along with. Although students seemed to love him and voted him among the best professors on campus, according to a professor who asked not to be identified, quote, he was nice to people who were useful to him, but if in any way he thought you were unworthy, he would take action against you. He humiliated colleagues in public, end quote. Which again, it's not a cute look. No. A longtime friend said he was a warm, loyal, and kind person, but also admitted, quote, if he didn't like you, he could be abrasive and nasty, end quote. According to Koble, BJ stood out at Duke. He wore colorful suits from Saks Fifth Avenue and huge horn-rimmed glasses. His hair was dyed blonde, and he was often seen sporting a large button that said, I'd rather be in Paris, which <laughs> okay. I, I kind of loved. Like, I got it. <laughs> In addition to his flashy clothes, he was loud and full of energy. He was the type of person who captured your attention and was always on center stage. Peter said he had one of the biggest personalities imaginable and would often dramatically demand money from the department by banging his fist on the table and threatening to leave if he didn't get the funding. During his time at Duke, BJ's career took off. He wrote two successful anthropology textbooks, Origins of Man in 1966, and Physical Anthropology, a Perspective, in 1973. But although things were going well for him professionally at Duke, BJ didn't like living in Durham very much, and both he and Vienna found it lacking the culture they were used to. They took trips out of town as much as they could, often flying to New York just to see an opera, ballet, or a Broadway show. Peter described the relationship between BJ and his wife as that of Siamese twins. They were always together. Although she published some papers of her own, most of her work appeared to be behind the scenes in her husband's lab. And Koble believed she was likely doing most of the work that BJ got credit for. Because she was arguably a much better student than mm, he was. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And BJ himself gave her credit for his most successful textbook, Origins of Man, which is widely regarded as a classic in physical anthropology. Vina supervised all of the research in his lab, and some of his students said that he was rarely there, and that he seemed much more interested in having a social life. Apparently, she was the one who kept the research moving forward, and her husband in check. BJ resigned from Duke in 1973 when he was denied money to expand the primate house, but his reputation as a genetic researcher won him an appointment as chairman of the anthropology department at NYU. He was given a new $200,000 laboratory, an increased departmental budget, and an apartment in a university-owned building overlooking Washington Square Park. He also received what some colleagues said was one of the highest salaries on the faculty. Although he left the lemurs behind, he would still study them from a distance and would occasionally visit Duke to collect blood samples for his research. While living in New York, BJ and Vina hosted lavish parties for their colleagues, where BJ, a gourmet cook, was known for serving meals of quote-unquote impeccable taste. The two were regulars at the New York Philharmonic and were finally living the life they had always wanted. Then one day, in 1977, Vina complained of abdominal pain. She seemed perfectly healthy otherwise, but the pain wouldn't go away and doctors were unable to diagnose it, 
so they suggested exploratory surgery. Vina agreed, but tragically died on the operating table. Oh. After Vina's death, BJ's research nearly slowed to a halt, and the National Science Foundation eventually withdrew its funding, a decision that made BJ absolutely furious. Although he continued to work in the lab at NYU, it was now on a much smaller scale. On paper, BJ was still studying lemur blood, but in practice, nobody working in the lab was really sure what he was doing. His hours at work became unpredictable, and he reportedly started spending a lot of time in Greenwich Village going to gay bars. When he did come into work, his colleagues described his behavior as odd. Then one day, BJ asked one of his research assistants, an undergraduate student named Richard Macris, to meet him at the lab on a Saturday. There weren't many people around on the weekend, and BJ informed him that they were going to be making an acetyl known as anthranilic acid. Anthranilic acid is commonly used in the preparation of perfumes and pharmaceuticals, as well as a UV absorber and corrosion inhibitor for metals. However, anthranilic acid is also considered a DEA List 1 chemical. Oh! Yep, because of its use in making the now widely outlawed euphoric sedative drug methoqualone, also known as quaaludes. Hey, there it is. Yep. BJ told him it was for the lemurs, but... Richard had his doubts. <laughs> We're going to party with these lemurs, for man. The lemurs. <laughs> I just want to get high with my fucking lemurs, man. Can you leave me alone? What the fuck? <laughs> I asked so little of you. I just want to get high with my lemurs. God damn it. In early February 1979, Macris began to suspect that some of the chemicals BJ had asked him to synthesize were illegal drugs. He reported his suspicions to another professor, Clifford Jolly, who advised him to keep a diary of what he observed. Jolly also started looking into BJ's work and snuck into the lab to take photographs, samples of various chemicals, and even scraps of paper from the trash cans. He sent the chemical samples to the DEA to be confidentially tested, and in mid-May received word that the DEA had found the samples to contain a high concentration of methoquilone. It was clear that BJ had been making quaaludes in his New York University lab, a euphoric sedative that was very popular in the 1970s and commonly referred to as disco biscuits, which I was unaware of and sounds honestly <laughs> oh adorable. God. If somebody offered me a disco biscuit and I didn't know what that was, I'd be like, yeah, yeah, fuck it, let's go. That sounds amazing, delicious and adorable. I mean... Don't do drugs, kids. I'm just saying. <laughs> I love that. It's so cute, right? I'm not going to lie. <laughs> If I get a dog, it's probably going to be named Disco Biscuits now. I would be upset if it isn't. Right? Tell me you don't want to meet a dog named Disco Biscuits. I do. Absolutely. Thank you. Or cat. I know you're not a big dog person. I'll meet any animal named Disco Biscuits. Okay, but this is the question. Like, if you're calling the animal to you, is it like a full, do they got a full name? Or is it Disco? Or is it Biscuits that you're calling? Dealer's choice. Just bis. Mix it up. I don't know. My dog Pixel had like 14 nicknames. Like he was Mm. Mr. Pixel, he was Mr. P, he was Pixel, he was the Pixelator. Like (laughs) it got wild. Yeah. Amazing. I love it. He responded to everything. He was a great dog. (laughs) He was Mr. Pickle for a while because on Halloween one year, we were giving out candy to the trick-or-treaters in our neighborhood on our front stoop and a bunch of kids stopped and asked us what our dog's name was. And we said, Mr. Pixel. And they were like, Mr. Pickle, that's the best name ever. So then we just called him Mr. Pickle for like three years after that. (laughs) I love that. Yeah. That's great. So 
Several days later, in the early afternoon of May 16th, Jolly and Macris conveyed their findings to the president of NYU. Later that day, they met with Assistant United States Attorney Dominic Amorosa and DEA agent Jack Toll. They told the authorities about the results of the confidential tests the DEA had conducted. Macris turned over the diary he had compiled on BJ's activities, and Jolly gave them samples of the compounds BJ had synthesized and the photographs he had taken. Confident that this evidence satisfied the requirement of probable cause, Amorosa proposed obtaining a warrant to search the laboratory. But it was instead suggested that NYU could consent to the search, eliminating the need for a warrant. The following night, on May 17th, at 10 o'clock, while BJ was attending a formal dinner, DEA agents and NYU staff entered the laboratory. They found methoqualone in the fume hood, marijuana in the new laboratory's cold room, lysergic acid hydrazine, a precursor to LSD on a laboratory bench, as well as something BJ planned to sell as a, quote, chemically pure form of synthesized cocaine, end oh, quote. Oh, shit. This seems like a kind of a fun lab, I'm not going to lie. It's like, <laughs> the DA agents don't think so, obviously, but no. It was clear to authorities that BJ had been using NYU's lab to make party drugs and that he'd enlisted his students to help him. After finding out his lab had been raided and knowing his students would be interviewed by law enforcement, he gave them some advice, telling them if they were going to be interrogated, they should take a tranquilizer so they could deny charges without giving themselves away. Unfortunately for BJ, one of the students was wearing a wire when he dispensed this advice. Ah, there it is. Oh, which now meant that in addition to being charged with manufacturing illicit substances, BJ was also being charged with obstruction of justice. Mm-hmm. BJ denied everything and claimed that he had been making neurotoxins to experiment on the lemurs and he was planning to use them for behavior modification. Oh, BJ, leave the lemurs out of right. this. <laughs> They've done nothing. Koble called this BJ's lewds and lemurs defense, which is hilarious, <laughs> and described it as, quote unquote, patently ludicrous, since no one had agreed to allow him to test these drugs on the lemurs. But BJ continued to stick to the story and claim he had planned the experiments with his Duke Lemur Center co-founder, Peter, who wasn't exactly delighted at being implicated. Students and colleagues had various theories about why he did what he did. Some say he just wasn't himself after his wife, Vina died, and that after she died, he realized she'd actually been the real genius and the one mm. doing all the work. While others said he was just trying to make money and have fun, a brilliant widower trying to entertain himself. Both of those things can be true, though. That's true. On October 4th, 1979, John Butner Janish was indicted on federal charges that he used his university laboratory to make lysergic acid diethylamide, aka LSD, methoqualone, and other illicit drugs for profit. He also was accused of forming a corporation named Simeon Expansions to launder the profits. And he's making all this shit out of the NYU lab. Yes. That's incredible. And he's like getting all the fucking <laughs> undergraduates to be like, hey, can you like help me with this uh, synthesis over here? Like, Don't ask me any questions. Yeah. That's incredible. Yes. The balls. Like, I, I mean, <laughs> it's like, I know this is illegal, but part of me is like, you know what? I weirdly respect this a little bit. You know, a little bit. The audacity knows no bounds. Yes. Federal Judge Charles Bryant presided over the two-week jury trial. In court, BJ's lawyer hinted that the students had actually been making the drugs and, when caught, made BJ a scapegoat. That makes sense. Yeah. 
right? He also hypothesized that Jolly himself could have planted the samples of LSD and the Quaaludes. In support of this theory, one former anthropology chairman at Michigan, Fred Thien, said, quote, I found the drug business incredible. He had no reason to do it, and I still don't really believe it. One looks at motive, and there is none, at least financially. Some people might have been envious of his position. He was the target of a certain amount of jealousy, and he may have been set up, end quote. Dr. James N. Spuller, former chair of the University of Michigan's Anthropology Department and advisor of BJ's doctoral dissertation, said, quote, All I know is I think Cliff Jolly is a shit. He or someone destroyed. <laughs> I know. I had to include that quote just because I was like, I That's love when incredible. people don't mince words. And they're just like, yeah. <laughs> I love it. He or someone destroyed a lot of things out of sheer jealousy. I mean, someone poured acid on the slides of lemur chromosome studies that BJ had done, end quote. Since BJ didn't need the money, having inherited quite a bit from his late wife, there didn't seem to be an obvious motive. However, according to former NYU professor Charles Leslie, quote, he wasn't doing it for money. He was doing it for ego. That was just part of his megalomania. He thought he could do anything and get away with anything, end quote. Yeah. Koble said he believes BJ was able to justify everything he did. His sense of entitlement was overwhelming, and he felt he was beyond suspicion and reproach. But the evidence was stacked against him, and on July 16, 1980, BJ was convicted of conspiracy, making illegal drugs, and lying to federal investigators. He was acquitted of one drug count, and Judge Bryant dismissed a charge of conspiracy to obstruct justice. BJ was sentenced to five years in prison, and after his appeals failed, began serving his sentence in May 1981 at the federal prison camp in Elgin Air Force Base in Florida. While there, he turned his cell into a tiny office— where he worked on the prison newsletter, reviewed book manuscripts for friends, and continued to work on scientific papers. When a friend visited him in the prison, he introduced his fellow inmates as, quote-unquote, colleagues. Of course. I of knew course. it. Of course. Even after his conviction and sentencing, BJ continued to claim he'd done nothing wrong and wrote many letters to friends outlining the ways he'd been wronged. In one, he wrote that upon release, quote, I will certainly take the most awful revenge upon certain people. Damn. Right? It's like, dude, don't put it in writing if you're going to do it. Like, <laughs> I mean, facts. Be cool. The Greeks are correct. Blood is a corrective for many wrongs. End quote. Damn. BJ was released from prison on parole on November 27th, 1983. Afterwards, he returned to New York and lived quietly at 50 East 8th Street, before eventually moving back to his family's home in Wisconsin. He wrote in letters to friends that he was spending his time baking cakes, gardening, and taking trips to Lake Superior. He told them he planned to return to Madagascar and that he was applying for a grant. But in reality, no university would hire him after the scandal. Sure. Then, four years after his release, in early February 1987, his federal probation officer gave him permission to visit New York for 30 days, where he planned to house it for a friend in Greenwich Village. That's very generous of the probation officer. It is very generous. days? Yeah. I feel like it's because, you know, it wasn't a violent crime, and he's, sure. you know, he's an academic, so they're like, it's probably fine. Uh, spoiler, it's not fine. It's not going to be fine. <laughs> On February 19th, 1987, BJ went to an opera at the Met, Mozart's La Clemenza di Tito an opera about revenge and attempted murder. 
When he returned to the apartment he was staying at, he was met by a group of police officers who promptly arrested him. Turns out, a few days earlier, on Valentine's Day, Charles Bryant, the judge who presided over BJ's trial, received a box of Godiva chocolates in the mail. It was addressed to him and his wife, and the card that came with it was signed only with a question mark. The judge's wife ate four pieces of chocolate, became extremely sick, and eventually lost consciousness. Her husband found her when he returned home from work, and she was immediately rushed to the emergency room. She remained in critical condition for several days, but fortunately survived, and eventually made a full recovery. It was determined that she had ingested two substances, atropine, a crystalline alkaloid sometimes called deadly nightshade, and spartanine, a stimulant sometimes used in pregnancies to induce labor. The FBI determined that each piece of chocolate in the box had been poisoned with a different toxic substance, and that one piece of uneaten candy contained a quote-unquote lethal concentration of pilocarpine hydrochloride, a drug prescribed only rarely in treating glaucoma and neurological disorders. While no apparent threats were made against the judge prior to the delivery of the chocolates, agents believed it was most likely a case of retaliation, and after interviewing the judge, said BJ had quickly emerged as their prime suspect. He also has it in fucking writing, you right? dumb fuck. Come on, bro. Again, if you're going to do it, don't say you're going to do it before you do it if you don't want to get caught. This is the issue with people who think they're smart enough to be criminals or not. They're fucking morons. Yes. Yes. We'll address this in a, in a bit. The FBI tested the outside of the Godiva box and found many fingerprints since it had been handled by a number of Postal Service workers. However, there was one fingerprint that was a perfect match to BJ's right-hand pinky finger. Not You didn't even wear fucking gloves, you dumb nope. fuck. My God. Authorities soon discovered that BJ had also sent boxes of chocolate to several other people that he felt had wronged him. Yep. <laughs> God. Including a former colleague at Duke University who'd once denied him tenure. Bro, you're so bad at this. Yeah. It's not it's not good. In the end, everyone recovered, but according to FBI agent Willem Doran, quote, it was sufficient to kill, end quote. When police searched his home, they found all of the poison paraphernalia and chocolates laid out as if they were on display in the apartment kitchen. They also were able to determine that the packages had been mailed from a mailbox on the corner of where the apartment was located. Peter Klopfer believes that this was not just carelessness on BJ's part, and that he had clearly wanted to get caught. He said BJ was a brilliant man, and that if he really hadn't wanted to get caught, he wouldn't have. Peter believes that in BJ's mind, his life was over. Vina was dead, his career was ruined, and he might as well go back to prison, basically. So... He committed the crime purposefully in a way that invited discovery and arrest. BJ pled guilty to the attempted murder of Judge Bryant and was sentenced to 40 years in prison at the Supermax Prison in Merriam, Illinois. While in prison, he started working on a new book about the lemurs of Madagascar, stayed up to date on the latest scientific journals, subscribed to Opera News, and exchanged letters with his friends, especially Peter, who said his mood in the letters was despondent but that his mind was still actively working, and he was still coming up with ideas. BJ frequently asked him to look up academic papers and summarize them for him for his work, and Peter kept BJ updated on what the lemurs were doing in Durham. When Peter eventually asked him why he'd done this, BJ claimed he had no recollection of having done it, but that if he had, said he deserved to be in prison. Even though BJ had tried to implicate him in the drug-making scheme, Peter said he was never angry with him. 
he just felt sorry for him and knew BJ was the type of person who needed to be protected from himself. Then, one day, Peter got a different kind of letter from BJ, who confided in him that he was HIV positive and most likely had AIDS. In failing health and disheartened by a recent ruling that he would not be freed until after the year 2000, BJ stopped eating and had to be force-fed. He eventually contracted pneumonia, and on July 2, 1992, BJ died at the age of 67 in a prison hospital. He was cremated, and his ashes were spread on Cranberry Lake in Wisconsin, near where he grew up. When BJ's obituary ran in the American Journal for Physical Anthropology, it was almost two pages long, and nearly all of it spoke of his professional accomplishments. The strides he made in the anthropological world, the love his students had for him, and his award-winning textbooks and articles. It only briefly mentioned his two criminal convictions and ended by saying, <laughs> I know, right? We're like, we're going to just we're gonna put notes like, that. Yeah. Let's go a gloss over this. Yep. And ended by saying that BJ, quote, made a strong impression, sometimes good, sometimes bad. Some of his actions were and will remain unfathomable to us, but the world is a sadder and duller place without him, end quote. And that is the story of John Butner Janish, the professor who made party drugs in his lab at NYU, then tried to murder the judge who convicted him with poison chocolates. There's so much to unpack I... from this fucking story. No, girl. I fucking know. I read this and I was like, this is wild. This is a wild fucking ride. I mean, especially like, it's not really old timey, but like, they just did it different back then. They man. really did. They were just like, it's fine. Who gives a fuck? Just no cameras. <laughs> like, we're to everybody be cool. Like, I'll get away with this. Yeah. It's like lemurs and ludes. I couldn't get over it. Lemurs and ludes needs to be a brand name for something. <laughs> I actually don't care what it is. Oh, my God. No. I was like, when I heard that on the podcast, I was like, that's amazing. That's going in. There's no way I'm leaving that part out. That's incredible. Right? That sounds like a band, honestly. Yeah. yeah. Or like. Like a dive bar. Are you going to Lemurs and Ludes later? Yes. Okay. You got like a two for one? We might have to start a dive bar called Lemurs and Ludes. I'm not upset about it. I'm in. <laughs> I already basically run a bar now. That's true. That's very true. This story is insane. I'm obsessed with like everything about it. Ah, I'm so glad. I knew you would be. It was wild. I couldn't get over it. I love science. And then this was like science and drugs and also attempted murder. Like, all right. Oh, my. Yeah. I mean, it was fantastic. I'm never going to get over Disco Biscuits or Lemurs and Ludes, like ever, as long as I live. I know. Oh, I'm glad you enjoyed it. Yes, absolutely. Thank you so much for that story. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Of course. I loved it. I knew you would love it. Go read the book. It's great. As a reminder, it's called... (laughs) It's not called Lemurs and Ludes? It's not called Lemurs and Ludes. They really missed... What a missed opportunity. They missed it there. Yeah. It's called (laughs) The Strange Case of the Mad Professor, and it's by Peter Koble. That was incredible. Thank you so much for that. Thank you for your story. I love that you watched These Woods Are Haunted, and I know I know you hate the woods, which now I kind of hate the woods after that story. It's <laughs> terrifying. Yes. And thank you guys so much for listening. This is another fucking horror podcast. I'm Monique Sanchez. And I'm Amy Traden. You can find me on the gram at pinupgirlmo. You can find me at lobotomy, and that's lobot period Amy. Also follow the show on the ground. We're at another fucking horror podcast. Every six episodes, we do a true listener tales episode where we read you your true crazy stories. So if you have one or you just want to say hi, 
email us at another fucking horror podcast at gmail.com with a period instead of the you and fucking guys we're so obsessed with you thanks for everything keep it cute keep it creepy bye, bye.